Lord, we are thankful for the way that you have blessed us with your word. It is most holy and most precious. And Lord, we, we want to trust it this evening. I pray that you would help us to do so, that you would create faith in our hearts, that when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through your word, we would trust it, we would delight in it, and we would live according to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The way that we live as human beings in this earth reflects the things that we believe and the desires that we have. Actions, they don't come out of nowhere. They don't just pop up, boom, action. They have roots. And those roots are in truths that we believe or untruths that we believe, things that we believe, or desires, and I should say, desires that we have. And this goes down to the very smallest of actions or the very most ordinary action that we may do. So imagine you're walking outside over by the road behind the parking lot and you walk by Tasty Kitchen. You go inside Tasty Kitchen. You order a Perota sandwich. You take it and you eat it. Simple actions, right? But in those actions, there were beliefs and there were desires that were shaping those actions. Why did you stop at Tasty Kitchen? You may have desired to satisfy your hunger, and you believed that a Perota sandwich would do it. You may have desired to save money for lunch, and you believed that a Perota sandwich would cost very little. You may have desired to taste a flavor that you enjoyed, and you believed that a Perota sandwich would be good to taste. You may have desired to try something new. Maybe you've never had a Perota sandwich before. And you thought, that's it. Tasty Kitchen, Perota sandwich, that will be the new experience. You believed that that Perota sandwich would give you that experience. You can see the simplest action, taking and eating a Perota sandwich, is rooted in beliefs and in desires. You believe it will do something and you want it to do those things. Most of the time, these beliefs and desires are running unconsciously through the back of our minds. We're not even aware of them. They're kind of like our operating system on our phone or our operating system on our computer. But that doesn't mean they're not shaping our actions. Our actions are still being shaped by a set of beliefs, by a set of desires. In our passage this evening, what Lucy just read for us, Paul comes back for the final time in the letter of 1 Timothy to the theme of false teaching that he's been dealing with. As Timothy has been serving as a pastor here in Ephesus, Paul has been exhorting Timothy to deal with false teachers in the right way. And what we'll see is that the, the action of false teaching, so the false teaching that comes about externally, it's rooted not only in false beliefs, but also in false desires. And here's the main idea that we're going to see from these verses that Lucy just read for us. The main idea is that false teaching, coming from false beliefs and false desires, leads to false living, which misses the eternal gain of genuine godliness. False teaching coming from false beliefs and false desires leads to false living, which misses the eternal gain of genuine godliness. And to see this, we're going to look at three points this evening, three connections in our text. 
The first is the connection between false teaching and false godliness. Then we're going to look at true godliness and eternal gain. And then finally, we're going to look at false godliness and eternal loss. So let's look at false teaching and false godliness, looking at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he, that person teaching, is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The problem with the false teaching in Ephesus wasn't just a theological problem, a problem with truths about God. It wasn't merely a problem of wrong beliefs, though it was that at a minimum. What Paul shows us here is that the false teaching that's happening in Ephesus is coming from false desires. It's coming from false desires. The word godliness that we see here in verse 3 and that we see in verse 5, it, it communicates religious activity, the external forms of religion. You cannot see belief. You cannot see desires. You can see godliness the way the Bible uses that word. It's the religious activity that's going on. Paul here is describing someone who doesn't teach the sound words of the gospel and whose teaching doesn't line up with gospel-shaped activity known as true godliness. In 1 Timothy, Paul is not only concerned with knowing the right things. We're, we're coming in on the end of this book, and we've seen throughout this book, Paul's not just concerned that we know truth, he wants us to live truth. He wants us to live in a way that accords with godliness, that accords with the gospel and that accords with true godliness, to have our lives centered and shaped around the gospel so the gospel presses its way into every area of our being, like we saw last week. The word godliness here shows up 15 times in the New Testament, Eight of those times are in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is all about godliness. We've seen this as we've worked through. We're to pray for our leaders so that they will rule in a way that allows for us to live godly lives. 1 Timothy 2. We confess the mystery of godliness. The mystery that leads to transformed lives. 1 Timothy 3. We are to train ourselves for godliness because godliness has value in every way. And Timothy, as we'll see here next week, as a pastor and leader of, the, leader of the church, is called to pursue godliness. Paul's very concerned about living rightly before God, not in order to earn God's salvation, but because we have been saved. And that is why this false teaching is so dangerous to the church. These false teachers keep the church not only from believing the right things, but from fulfilling what they are called to be 
and what they are called to do. I mean, just look at how Paul describes these false teachers and the people that listen to these false teachers. These false teachers are not misguided. They're not poorly discipled. If only we could get them some training. They're not immature. These false teachers are puffed up with conceit, and they understand nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce in their listeners envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. The people who want to listen to this false teaching are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. And then notice why these false teachers and these people who listen to their false teaching are characterized in this way. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Now the next verses are going to make clear that what Paul means here is earthly gain. Paul's going to say godliness is a means of gain. The godliness these folks are after is earthly gain. The action of false teaching is not only connected to false beliefs. These people want the wrong things. They want earthly gain. They want earthly status. They want earthly wealth and earthly power. They use their religious activity as a means to get it. They say, if I live in this way, people will look up to me and I'll have power. Or if I speak in this way, people will listen to me and I'll be able to cause division and dissension and puff myself up being conceited. They want wealth and so they use godliness to get it. They teach and act false things because they want, because they believe false things. They imagine that godliness is a means to earthly prosperity. Did you know that it's possible to use Christianity as a means to get things, to take it and use it as a tool to get things that run contrary to Christianity. That you can take Christianity, put on false appearances, live and call yourself a Christian in such a way, not because you care at all about Christianity, not because you care about God at all, but because you care about earthly power and earthly gain. It's been happening since the church in Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. And it happens today. People can write books. They can speak at conferences. They can pastor churches so that they would have earthly gain, earthly power. And in doing so, would undercut the actual truth of the gospel with the way that they live their lives. So we shouldn't be naive about this. Now, 1 Timothy, it doesn't call us to be suspicious of anyone in authority. We've seen how 1 Timothy celebrates authority. We're called to honor those who are in authority, but we're not naive. We look at the way people live, and in looking at the external way that they live, we can begin to understand what are they believing and what are they wanting. False teaching is connected with false godliness. You can almost hear someone misunderstanding Paul when he says they imagine that godliness is a means of gain and say, wait a second, Paul, do you mean that godliness isn't good for anything? Do you mean that godliness doesn't bring us any benefits? 
So in verse 6, Paul clarifies this. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see true godliness and eternal gain. He says, but, so he's just said, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. True godliness, Paul says, is great gain. But it is true godliness with contentment. What is Christian contentment? When Paul says with contentment, what does he mean there? In his book, Chasing Contentment, Eric Raymond, a pastor in the United States, writes this. He says, contentment is the inward, gracious, that means it comes from God's grace, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. To be content is to be satisfied with what you have. And it's an inward disposition. It's a desire in that sense. You can't see contentment on the outside. Someone may be sitting there looking perfectly content and inside they are torn up. They may say that they are perfectly content, but inside they are coveting. And this contentment is a disposition that's connected with joy. To be content is to be satisfied. You can't be bitterly content. Well, I guess I'll just be bitterly content with my lot in life. That's not contentment. That's actually discontentment. You can't be angrily content. To be content is to be satisfied with what you have, either in your possessions or in your circumstances. And contentment is incredibly rare in our world. It is incredibly rare for someone to say, I'm satisfied. I mean, the whole point of advertising is to tell us that we should not be satisfied. You are missing out. You don't have what you want. Or you don't have what you truly need. If only you had new Tide Pods, three in one, available at Lulu for $27.99, you will be satisfied. Your whites will be whiter. Your brights will be brighter. You'll look good. You'll be what you are supposed to be. Without it, your life will be a wreck. Every day, every hour, we have messages coming our way telling us, don't be content with what you have. You need more. But the reality is that the stuff won't make us happy. The new Tide Pods won't make us happy. The stuff is only temporary. I mean, that's where Paul goes. He says, we, we brought nothing into the world. And you can take nothing out of the world. Your earthly wealth, your material possessions, they will not last. You came into the world with nothing. And when we die, we will not be able to take our wealth or our possessions with us. And yet, we are still so discontent in this life. We want physical things that in our minds, we 
know or we say we know will not last. Why are we not content? Why do we think we will not be happy unless we buy more stuff? Why do we think we will not be truly satisfied unless we get a different job? Why are we not content unless we have more money? Why do we store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal? The reason we are not content goes back to the earlier verses. It's because of false beliefs and false desires. We look around at others' lifestyle and we desire it because we believe that that will make us happy, that their life is better than our life, and so we want what they have. We look at the money that another job could provide or we're scrolling and seeing salaries online and we desire that different job so strongly that we begin to covet it because we believe that the money will solve our problems. Our discontentment is rooted in desiring things that aren't true, in wanting things that won't actually bring fulfillment. When I moved to the UAE, the most difficult possession to get rid of, or possessions to get rid of, were my books. So I love books. I love the way books look. I love the way books smell. I love books that I have, and I love books that I don't have. Laura, godly woman that she was, is, was kind enough to allow for me to put my books in the most prominent spot of my house. So that when you came into our apartment or our home, you would see all my books because they were the best decoration that we had. I loved my books. But it wasn't until I had to get rid of these books, I had to either give them away or put them in a box and leave them behind, that I realized that I had actually been sinfully desiring these books. I had been using these books to get me something. And I had been discontent with the idea of not having these books. I needed more books. I wanted more books. It wasn't the information that was in them. For most of those books I'd already read. And the ones that I hadn't read, I probably wasn't going to read. It wasn't the fact that I couldn't get more access to that information even because for most of them, God provided for us to be able to buy the digital copies of those books. I have many of those books on my Kindle. It wasn't the information that the books contained. It was the status that, that those books gave me. And I realized that I was unable to let go of my books, unable to be content without books, because I had been wrongly desiring the status that comes with having a large library. You could walk into my home, you could look, and you could see that person cares about knowledge. That person cares about information. That person must be intelligent. When I pull out my phone, no one looks at me like that, even though I have a thousand books on my phone. But when you see the books, you see the status, and that was what I was wanting. That was what I was desiring all along. 
I would have been discontent in those moments without my books because I was desiring wrong things and sinful things. And so in order to overcome that discontent, I had to see that the status, the pride that I had been wanting through those books was just as fleeting as clothing or food or money. I had to pursue genuine godliness that comes to being content with what I had. How can you have genuine godliness and genuine contentment? How can you experience the power that's going to let you live in a way that is totally countercultural to the UAE and to say, I have enough. With food and clothing, I'm content. The way you'll do that is by recognizing the power and the blessing that we have in Christ Jesus through the gospel. By recognizing the true teaching of the gospel and the true godliness that accords with the gospel. Godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul says, because of Christ. The things of this world will perish with us and we can't take them beyond this life. But the blessings that true godliness provide, they will last forever. They will never perish. They will never wear out. And this is because Jesus promises eternal life, life forever that will last for those who trust in him. The gain that we have in Jesus is infinitely greater than anything this world has to offer. We fail to be content in this life. We fail to be satisfied with the situation or the possessions that we currently have because either we don't actually want Christ. It may be true. You may not be born again and have a desire for Christ. You just want Jesus to get stuff. It's either because we don't actually want Christ or because we struggle to believe that what Christ gives us is better than what this world has to offer. Our desires and our beliefs aren't pointed to Christ. They're not centered around who he is. But when you see Jesus for who he is, and you want him for who he is, then you see that nothing this world compares to him. Nothing in this world can even bring a fraction of the happiness that he can bring. And we're able to say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret, Paul? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When your anchor is tied to Jesus, when you are satisfied with him, your life is centered with him, everything you have revolves around him, then you can withstand any circumstance or storm that life has to offer. A pastor put it like this almost 400 years ago. A godly man, in the midst of the waves and the storms that he meet, can see the glory of heaven before him. He sees through the storms to the glory of heaven. 
and so contents himself. One drop of the sweetness of heaven is enough to take away all the sourness and the bitterness of all the afflictions of this world. We can be content with what we have because we have something far better than anything this world has to offer. And when we believe it and we desire it, we can see through that a single drop of heaven offsets the most bitter of life circumstances. Because of Christ, true godliness leads to eternal gain. And this leads to our final connection that we see, false godliness and eternal life. Look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Godliness that accords with Christ leads to eternal life, eternal gain. The consequences for godliness that does not accord with Christ, for false godliness, is eternal condemnation. Paul here comes back to the people he's been talking about at the beginning of the passage. And he says, those who imagine godliness as a means of earthly gain, of, of getting money in this life, they actually want money and they use godliness to get it. They have the appearance of godliness without its true power. That's not godliness. They're living for this world. And so the pleasures of this world are all that they will experience. Paul doesn't say in our passage, some of you have maybe heard and grown up hearing that money is the root of all evil. Paul doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. That would be blaming the stuff. And we've seen our situation with our desires is not the stuff that's wrong. We are the ones that are wrong. It's the love of money, the desire for money, wanting, loving, desiring money, believing that money will make you happy, believing that money will solve all your problems and wanting that money. That's the root of all kinds of evil. And the reason for this is precisely because our actions flow out of our desires and our beliefs. When we love money, we chase after it. We're willing to tear people down in order to get it. We're willing to withhold from other people in order to keep it. We're willing to lie, to deceive, to steal in order to get more of it. We love money, we'll do whatever it takes to obtain it. Those actions come from sinful desires. When we love money, we reveal that we believe that it is our savior, that money is our satisfier. But brothers and sisters, that's the way to death. When you love money more than Christ, you will obtain neither for all eternity. Your money will die with you. The language that Paul uses is very graphic. The love of money is a snare. It's a trap. It is a ruin, destruction. It leads to forsaking Christ, being pierced with many pangs, 
It is not wrong to have money. It is wrong to love money. And for those of you who don't have money, you can love even what you do not have. One of the great dangers of the prosperity gospel, which so many of us in our church have been surrounded by or influenced by, is that it fails to take into danger, into account the dangers of prosperity, the dangers of love for money. It preaches to people a gospel of money that turns the eternal gain of Christ into the shallow counterfeit of worldly wealth. And in doing so, it doesn't lead people to Christ. It leads people into a snare, into a trap, lying to them all the way about the comfort they have, telling them precious promises that will lead to their death. And because the love of money is so deadly, that makes the UAE a very dangerous place, does it not? The love of money is in the air that we breathe here. It's in the water that we drink. Most of us have come here because we can make more money here than we would be able to make in our home countries. We are told that getting a better job will lead to a better future for our children, for ourselves. And this is why it's so important to pursue the true godliness that's connected with contentment. Like I said, money is not the problem. God is the one who richly provides. God uses money in order to accomplish his purposes. Money is not evil. But when we want money more than God, it becomes satanic. It becomes a false god. And it's so important to connect true godliness with contentment in Christ because Jesus is the Savior that money is not. Jesus is the satisfier that money is not. You cannot keep your money. And if you are in Christ, you cannot lose your eternal inheritance. I love this quote from the American missionary to the Aukis peoples of South America, Jim Elliott. He wrote this in 1940s, I believe. That's when this came about, maybe 50s. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The love of money tells us, this is it. You are missing out. You need more, more. And Jim Elliot says, being content with what you have, in fact, being willing to give up what you have because you have something that you cannot lose in Christ, that's not foolish at all. That is wisdom. And any of you who know the story about Jim Elliot know that he believed this. He lived this. On January 8th, in 1956, Jim Elliot was killed. He was martyred trying to take the gospel to a people, and they killed him for it. He was 28 years old. 28. He gave up his life that he could not keep. 
and he gained Christ forever. And right now, Jim Elliot has Christ, and he was no fool. If you are here this evening and you do not have Christ, if you have no idea why someone would make that decision, I'd love to talk with you after the service. The way in which we get this sort of gain that we cannot lose isn't by doing enough good things. It's not by living the right way. It's not even by giving up the right things. The way that we get what we cannot lose is by receiving through faith. When we turn from pursuing earthly wealth, earthly status, earthly glory, and we turn to Jesus, we gain that which we cannot lose. And if you're here tonight, and you are a Christian, which many of us are, are you content in Christ? Has the eternal gain that you have in Christ Jesus sunk so deep into your soul that you are able to be content whether you abound or whether you are in poverty, whether you are high or whether you are low? Through the gospel, Jesus gives gain that this world cannot compare with. He removes physical pain. Some of you may be in pain this evening. Christ removes it forever. No more pain. No more physical suffering. He removes emotional pain. Some of you may be feeling devastated. You look good on the outside and you are broken on the inside. Christ Jesus promises a future with no more tears, no more sorrows. He removes the threat of death and loss, and evil. Sin, Satan, death, gone forever. He removes the guilt and shame that we feel when we sin. Some of you are going through the same pattern, struggling with the same sins, and you feel dirty inside. Christ removes that. You will be clean, holy, forever. He removes our sin, in fact, as far as the East is from the West. But Jesus doesn't just take away the bad stuff. Jesus provides the best stuff for us. He provides us with an eternal home. Those of us in the UAE, we know this is not our home. Right? We cannot be here forever. But we have a home. We have a city that cannot be shaken. A possession that will last for all times. Jesus provides us with an eternal family some of you may have lost your family members. Some of you may be forsaken by your family members because of your desire to pursue Christ. Jesus puts you an eternal family, a family that you belong to, who belong to you, a family who delight in you and whom you can delight in. Jesus provides us with eternal life to the fullest, pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Jesus gives glory and honor. Jesus takes the glory that he has and he honors us with it. He elevates us. He came and he has us sit with him so we can reign with Christ. He gives us true riches, every spiritual blessing in the holy places. 
and he clothes us with the beauty of his righteousness. Christian, that is yours. Right now, sitting in your seats, you possess that. Jesus died. He has given the Holy Spirit to you. You did nothing to get that other than receive him. And it's yours. And it can never be taken away from you. No more can the Father forsake the Son than can the Father forsake those who are in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is yours. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And we can be content because we know the gain that we have in Christ. We desire it and we believe it. And so when we see the lies of this world coming our way, making promises, when our circumstances shake us and tell us that there's something wrong, the sweetness of heaven, the sweetness of what Christ has provided, turns the most bitter circumstance sweet. We can see through the crashing waves to the glory of heaven at Christ's right hand, and we can enjoy him. Christ gives us all these blessings in himself, which means to have Christ is to have everything. My prayer for us is that we would know that, we would trust it, we would desire it, and we would live a godly life that is shaped by that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promises that you have given us. We thank you that, God, you who did not spare your own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? So, God, I pray, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to be content. That, Spirit, you would come and work contentment in our hearts because we know the great gain that we have in Christ. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.